anything that involves uh, a challenge to the brain is the best thing that you can do for the brain. So anything that's new that you haven't done before, a hill that you've not climbed before, that's what you want to always be seeking. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. This week, our guest is David Eagleman, a Stanford neuroscience professor, author of eight books, and the CEO and co-founder of Neosensory a company specializing in creating sensory substitution devices. Many of you might know him from his popular TED Talk, where he revealed a vest that was capable of taking noises and data from the outside world, or even from the internet, and translating those noises into vibrations on the body, which could allow people to translate those vibrations into a new sense of sorts. For instance, the initial testing with the vest could take people talking in the external world and translate those noises into vibrations that a deaf person could eventually detect, as if the vibrations on the body were a form of braille. While this is just one of the many fascinating reasons that I wanted to talk to Dr. Eagleman, there's another reason in particular, which is that he recently released his 2020 novel, Live Wired, where he attempts to redefine and examine the idea of neuroplasticity. In the simplest terms, neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to rewire itself as we experience the world around us. The brain is constantly changing. It's a simple enough notion to describe, but as you'll hear, the implications of this process are really, truly profound. In fact, it's arguably one of the core reasons why humanity has actually become the dominant species we have become. In spite of the complexity of these topics, I would have to say this conversation is truly an episode for everyone. First off, exploring these fundamental ideas of neuroscience is just utterly fascinating and inspiring. But we also explore the role that these concepts play in things like business, in our day-to-day lives, and as experts. And we also touch on the future of sensory technology, the, the future of humanity in a sense, and how we'll very likely have a near-term situation where humans begin unlocking extra extra senses. And finally, you'll notice at the end of this episode, we take several questions from our online community of over 30,000 members. And if you would like to ask questions of our future guest, or even potentially be a guest on future episodes, that's something we'll be doing very soon. Be sure to go to su.org slash podcast and follow the links to sign up and explore which community membership level is the right one for you. In the meantime, please welcome to the feedback loop, Dr. David Eagleman. So I thought to start, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your book and why you're so focused on bringing into the language this idea of live wired instead of neuroplastic. Yeah, great. So the book is called Live Wired. And the idea is, um, so there's this thing in neuroscience called brain plasticity. And the idea is that this captures how the brain changes. So when you learn something new, when you learn that my name is David, there is a physical change in the structure of your brain. And that's how you can remember it a week later, a month or a year later. But 
the term was actually introduced uh, a century ago when people were impressed with plastic manufacturing, which is specifically that you can, you know, you can change, you can mold the shape of something and then it holds on to that shape. And that's why we that's what we find useful about plastic is that it holds on to the shape. But really, as, as a neuroscientist looking into this for years, I realized it's such a bigger concept than that because You've got 86 billion neurons that are constantly, every second of your life, adjusting and changing. They're, the, the connections between them, which number in the trillions, um, are constantly changing their strength and unplugging and seeking and replugging elsewhere. Every moment in your life, this stuff is happening and the changes are getting passed on to sort of deeper and deeper structures that hold on to the data. And so I realized it's th that our days of being impressed by plastic manufacturing are over and, and we need a different term for it. So, so LiveWired is the, chose I, the, the term I chose because, you know, it's interesting here, here in Silicon Valley, of course, what all we ever talk about is hardware and software. And I realized that what we're all carrying around on our shoulders is, uh, is, is LiveWare. It's a different kind of device. Um, that we wouldn't even believe is true, except that we have an existence proof, three pounds of it for every person. And so that's, that's why I use the term nowadays, liveware and live wired. So why this topic amongst all the other things you could do? I mean, you're, you're, I think you've written about eight books now, you teach at Stanford, you're running a company. Why dedicate yeah. so much of that, I would imagine, rare and limited time to this one topic above all else? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's because I think this is the most fundamental principle in, in neuroscience is how you have a system that changes itself based on experience and relevance and so on. And this is the thing that has set our species apart. Mother Nature essentially has, has taken a gamble with us that, uh, that she hasn't fully with other species, which is, you know, hey, why don't you drop the brain into the world half-baked and let the world wire it up instead of trying to pre-program everything. So if you're, you know, if you're born as a, as a horse, um, you know, you're essentially the same horse in every generation. You, you come kind of pre-programmed with things, eat, mate, run, whatever. Um, but humans, we have these incredibly long infancies where we drop into the world and have to learn everything around us. The advantage is by the time you're, you know, a kid, by the time you're eight or nine years old, you can learn pretty much, you know, most things that humans have discovered before us. And then you springboard off from that. And that is why when you look at the innovation curve of our species, it's on this exponential. That's why we've taken over every corner of the planet. We've gotten off the planet. We've invented, uh, you know, vaccines and internet and everything else. And so, um, you know, and the re I, I just want to mention the reason I, I say it's a gamble is because what Mother Nature expects is, okay, this brain's going to drop into an environment that gets all the proper, um, you know, input, the, the love and touch and education and so on. And it turns out we, you know, we have these tragic stories where children end up not in these environments and, uh, and they, their brains don't develop correctly. So, you know, children, just as an example, in Romanian orphanages who... Um, you know, after the fall of Ceausescu, there were tens of thousands of kids in these orphanages because their parents had been executed. And so um, there were too many for the staff and the staff said, well, let's just go ahead and not touch them and not talk to them because if we do, they'll be too clingy. And as a result, all these kids grew up with major cognitive deficits, which is one of these 
tragic things that teaches us that brains, you know, they need a particular kind of input in order to become what they can become. Yeah. And are, have you been concerned at all with the current input that the brain is receiving because of the modern era? One thing I'm particularly interested in is how our technological landscape, the cities of millions of people, um, how this is so different from our evolutionarily adaptive environment and what kind of yeah. maladaptations might result from that? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm actually quite optimistic about it. So, so for example, the, um, the fact that kids grow up with the internet now, having the entirety of humankind's knowledge at their fingertips is incredible. I, I have a very strong prediction that the next generation is gonna grow up to be much smarter than we are because they just have the access to all this when they want it. And it turns out from a, from a live wiring point of view, um, the brain does its best changes when it is curious about something that maps onto the neurotransmitters that are present. So, um, you know, if, if you care about something and I tell you the answer, it'll stick in a way that if I tell you, you know, 10, you know, important dates in, uh, Ukrainian history, it's not going to stick because you don't care, perhaps. So anyway, you know, I, I grew up having a lot of just in case knowledge where the teacher would teach me things just in case I ever needed to know them. But my children, for example, get a lot of just in time knowledge. As soon as they're curious about something, they ask Alexa, they ask Google Home, they get the answer right then, and it sticks. And I can see it because I asked them a month later about that thing and they say, oh yeah, this is the answer. And it's because it, the answer came in the context of their curiosity. Mm. Do, you, do you think, uh, you, you talk about how using the um, colonization of America as a metaphor, how if you don't send resources to a part of the brain that it will kind of be conquered and that real estate will be taken over by other parts of the brain. Do you think maybe for instance, um, parts of the hippocampus uh, let's say, might be losing real estate because now computer hard drives remember things that our brains don't need to remember? Like, is there any kind of deep thing happening like that that you're concerned about on a, on a deeper level? Oh, yeah, great question. But I, I'm actually not concerned about it. Again, I'm optimistic. It's because mm -hmm. what we've built is essentially an exobrain so that we can store a lot of things externally. And thank God for that, because there's let me give you an example. I don't know how old you are, Steve, but you know, I'm, I'm older than you are, it looks like. And I, you know, memorized all my friends' phone numbers growing up. Now I don't memorize any phone numbers. Thank God. Like what a waste <laughs> of neural space. And so, you know, and in the same way that um, you can do lots of calculations and computations now where when I was growing up, I had to write all these things out by hand. I mean, who, who wants to do that stuff? There's so much more important stuff that the brain can do that all falls under the category, let's say, of creativity, which is to say, taking in massive amounts of information and then figuring out how to bend and break and blend that information to come up with new stuff. That's what you want to be doing with your resources rather than memorizing stuff like maps or phone numbers or um, calculations. Yeah. So are there states of mind or activities then that increase the brain's malleability? Uh, like does like the flow state, maybe like socializing, anything like that? Yeah, actually, um, not so much the flow state, because that represents something that you've overtrained on, you know, which is very useful. There's lots of things you want to be well trained on. But um, uh, anything that involves 
uh, a challenge to the brain is the best thing that you can do for the brain. So anything that's new that you haven't done before, a hill that you've not climbed before, that's what you want to always be seeking. And it's important for us as we're going through our lifetimes. It's, it's actually also really, really important for people when they retire. Most people, when they retire, their lives shrink and um, they do less and less, including social. And that's really terrible for, for their brains. So what you want to do when you retire is stay just as active, you know, seek novelty, seek challenges all the time. You know, people always ask me, well, what about, you know, should I do something like Sudoku? Sure, do Sudoku. But as soon as you get good at it, drop it and do the next thing that you're not good at. That's the point. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. In fact, there was this study about, uh, it's, it's actually a long ongoing study um, about nuns who have uh, all agreed to donate their brains upon their death. And it turns out that um, some fraction of these nuns had Alzheimer's disease, but nobody knew it when they were alive. They didn't show the cognitive symptoms. And uh, this is because they lived in convents till the day they died. So they had social lives, they had chores, responsibilities, they were playing games, they were having arguments with the other sisters, they were doing all kinds of stuff that brains do and constantly challenging their brains. Uh, and so even though their brains physically were degenerating with Alzheimer's, they were building new roadways and bridges in there, thanks to um, plasticity or live wiring. Wow. So just by staying active mentally, exactly. it actually was able to fight against the physical de degeneration? It, exactly. It was just wow. building, building new pathways and saying, oh, okay, I need to do this. I'll build this here. And so, you know, this was a big discovery that now in the Alzheimer's field matters a lot, which is probably the best thing you can do uh, is stay active. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily avoid Alzheimer's disease. It avoids the cognitive symptoms that come with it. Yeah. And, and what about the balance here? Like I, I'm a big advocate of embracing chaos of challenging yourself, you know, going into novelty, but your metaphor on colonization also got me thinking that I should repeat behaviors that are important to me so that those bits of real estate don't get taken over. Is there a key to balancing enriching your brain with new experiences while also kind of strengthening the parts of yourself that you want to keep? Yeah. You know, all animals in the animal kingdom have this trade-off between exploitation and exploration. Exploitation is doing the things that you already know how to do and you want to be good at. And exploration is looking at the new stuff. So all animals t tend to have like an 80-20 balance where they exploit things they already know how to do and then they're seeking these novel things. Um, and you know, and the, the reason animals do this is because the world changes. So if you, you know, always look under the, uh, the red rocks for the, the worms that you eat, you know, the world might change. It might be a drought, whatever, and then you should be looking under the blue rocks. So animals always explore this way, but I think that's a pretty good notion for the brain as well. And, and in fact, you know, my last book uh, called The Runaway Species talked about this issue that we're always, humans always want to find themselves in this middle zone between novelty and familiarity. And one of the things that was interesting about the pandemic that hit in 2020 was, you know, these massive fluctuations where suddenly everything was new, nothing was routine anymore. And, and that was really tough on people. And then so people figured out, okay, what do I need to do to make this so that you know, I really can have routine in my life, but then it became too routine. And then, you know, it started, all the days started blending together. Um, so people really had to work in 2020 to figure out how do I find that middle point between novelty and familiarity? 
Yeah, I was going to say my big problem was telling people everything is so routine and orderly right now. I I don't feel inspired. I don't feel productive. Like maybe you can speak to that, but like my inspiration, I love to work in coffee shops um, and and just have the, the noise and cacophony all around me. And it, for some reason, makes me focus and feel more creative. Is that, is that something to do with live wiredness sense like my brain is trying to grasp all of this these sensations around me and because of that i can channel that into something you, you know by the way i'm exactly the same way all of my books i've written at coffee shops uh, <laughs> mostly at ihop actually um but the um yeah you know it's funny i don't think that has so much to do with live wiring as just the fact that we uh, you know, we are exploratory animals and there's always the, the what ifs at a coffee shop. You know, you run into a friend once in a while and you hear some snatch of a conversation once in a while. And, and also we're extraordinarily social as a species. We're one of the most social species around. You know, there's this notion of Darwinian competition, survival of the fittest and so on. But that doesn't actually explain human behavior in its entirety. It's, uh, you know, we're an extremely altruistic social species um, as well. Uh, as as being competitive, and so uh, it's this has been obviously one of the hardest parts of the pandemic is being alone in our homes when we are so programmed. So much of our brain circuitry is about other humans, and uh, and suddenly we didn't have that. Yeah, is it? This is something I feel like I, I read um, from Sapolsky's book Behave, and I'm obsessed with that book and it's a lot of information so i'm not sure if i'm getting this correctly exactly but uh is is it true that like new experiences to the brain release calcium instead of sodium as a way to like help the new experience compete with the older more established experiences no it's not it's not calcium and sodium it's acetylcholine Mm. uh, is what happens so so what happens is anytime there's reward or punishment um, you get this release of acetylcholine. You, you, there are actually many different neurotransmitters that are involved in these things. Dopamine is another one that's uh, released when something is is rewarding and matters and so on. But let's take acetylcholine as our, our main example. Um, yeah, when you're doing something that leads to an unexpected result, um, you get this released at very specific spots in the brain that says, hey, you know what? Change your internal model of what you think is going on out there because something just happened that is a little different than, than we thought. And when you're a kid, your brain is just soaked in acetylcholine and everything is changing, but it's kind of like, um, how do I put this? When you're a kid, it's like a Polaroid photograph where everything is coming into focus at once as you're learning stuff. But as you get older, it becomes more like an impressionist painting where mm. just little dots change here and there. Um, because, you know, you've got a pretty established model of the world and now you're just making updates to it. Yeah. Interesting. Is that so how does the brain kind of handle that then, I guess? Is that the key way, like the live wired process, I guess, handles making sure that the old mature um, memories and, and, and synapses don't just completely stop anything new from forming? Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> so I have a whole chapter about this in the book because I think this is a really important area. It turns out what people figured out when they started doing artificial neural networks is that the enemy of memory is not time, it's other memories, which is mm. to say, as you, as you try to teach a neural network more and more stuff, you start getting memory mud. And so what I realized is that the brain has to have a way of passing things off 
you know, once something gets established, like, oh, I see there's this pattern here, then if that's, you know, if that's consistent and verifiable, then it gets passed to deeper and deeper parts of the system. And so now the way that I think about the whole system is that um, it, it's what's called a pace layer model. So for example, when you think about um, cities, Stuart Brand has this wonderful um, you know, version of cities in different pace layers, which is to say something like fashion changes quickly, something like what businesses are in the buildings, like the restaurants that are, that changes, but a little bit more slowly. The buildings themselves change even more slowly. The governance of the city, the laws of the city, that changes even more slowly. The nature of the city is in where the trees are and the rocks and whatever, that changes even more slowly. So when, when you try to understand a city, you need to understand these changes at different time scales. Some things are changing fast, some things are changing slow, and they all interact with one another. So I've taken that model and applied it to the brain, which is to say, you've got some things in the brain that react very quickly and say, oh, okay, great. I'm going to make a change here, blah, blah, blah. And you have things all the way that are all the way to the level of genetic changes that happen much more slowly. Um, specifically, there's this field of epigenetics, which you know shows how even though your genome stays the same, the genes that you express or repress, those are um, those can actually change based on your experience. So you have live wiring all the way down at these different levels. Anyway, without the details, that's the that's the way that you store memories is they work their way down and down and down in the system as they get more verified and you see it more, it becomes a deeper part of what's going on. So is that maybe where like repetition has its benefits? You talk about how, for example, when people see experts, maybe like a, an athlete, they, you, you, you instinctually think, oh, they must be calculating so many more things than I am and doing all this thinking when in fact, they're not thinking at all. They've, they've made it instinctual and they've kind of gotten out of their own way. Um, is that, is that kind of it or is it that iteration, that repeating of memories, what kind of helps us move through the pace layers to, to build that instinctual expertise? Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So uh, the expert at soccer or baseball or whatever has automatized all these behaviors. They've burned it down into the circuitry so that now it's like hardware rather than software. So, you know, the first time I'm playing a new sport that I haven't played before, my brain is on fire with activities. I'm trying to figure out what, I'm supposed to do next and where my elbows are and what I'm, you know, how to run and so on. But, um, but yeah, an expert, it's just part of their hardware. They just run it smoothly. And that is exactly right because they've put the 10,000 hours into it. Um, they have burned that all the way down. No, knowing these kinds of things that you know about expertise and the live wine and, and the brain, uh, do you do anything differently in your day-to-day -day life to kind of life hack, or I guess, optimize your, functionality as hmm. an animal? I, yeah, that's very interesting. I think I do a lot of things without uh, almost to the point of not even recognizing them anymore. But um, sure, I um, uh, actually, I'll tell you one thing I was just thinking about that I do that isn't so much about live wiring, but it's about understanding that the brain is made up of lots of different drives. You have all these different neural networks that are geared to care about different things. And um, as a result, you sometimes think, look, I'm the kind of person who, you know, when I'm faced with some temptation, I won't screw this up, but then you always screw it up when you're actually faced with the temptation. So, so something that I've done in my life is uh, what's called the Ulysses contract, which is 
you know, when you're thinking in, you know, a long-term view of yourself and so on, you, you actually can set things up so that you can't um, break the rules when you get into a situation where you're tempted to mess up. So um, this is a hack that I use all the time. And actually, this is going to be one of my next books because I just find it so useful and important. It's so simple, and yet it doesn't get implemented that much um, as it should. Yeah, that's one of my favorite mental techniques. I think about yeah. the same thing. Um, yeah. does, does that carry over into your world as a business owner at all? I don't know if you like have employees or maybe mm. as a teacher, but like knowing that... Well, let me let me kind of restart, I suppose. G- given that our world is very routine, especially with like a nine to five job, and we tend to hyper specialize people into doing the same task over and over, as maybe a business owner, as a teacher, um, or just your general view yeah. of the economy, are we running into issues here by having people be so repetitive and not doing more new tasks, challenging tasks to kind of help live wire their brain? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you would mention this because, right, in my company, Neosensory, um, you know, so I tend to always throw new tasks onto the plate. Like, hey, guys, we want to try this completely crazy new thing. Let's try this, blah, 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 blah. It's interesting to me that um, some people are always on board for that. They say, wow, that's cool. Let's try that. And some people really react and dig in their heels there. So what's clear, I mean, first of all, there are a million differences between people, which we don't usually sort of talk about and recognize but but one of them is that some people love seeking novelty and other people really like to get a job and do their one thing until retirement and so um but yes i try to inject novelty um during during the pandemic it's been so challenging to do that obviously we like every business has tried this dumb thing of hey let's get together for lunch online let's do this this." but but none of it is really that great because you're still there in your slippers and you know yeah, it's just, it's not that different. So, okay, yeah. Speaking of your company, let's let's continue down that road. Now, I, I I think you your big thing that I think a lot of people might know you for is the vest that you showed at uh, TED Talk that vibrated in response to the environment. But I, I believe you've converted that to a uh, wristband, wristband, correct? Yes. yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that's coming along? Yeah, you bet. So, just in case anybody doesn't know, uh, one of the things like made in my lab was uh, originally, yes, a vest with vibratory motors in it. And um, we can do lots of things for that. But let's say uh, for deaf people, we capture sound and we turn that into patterns of vibration on the skin. And deaf people can come to understand what is happening in the auditory world by feeding that information up through their skin, which of course climbs up to their spinal cord and up into their brain. And they can come to understand it by, you know, you watch a dog's mouth move and you feel the bark and you start realizing, or, or you're lip reading somebody and you feel the information on your skin and your brain starts putting that together. What happened is immediately after my Ted talk, um, a number of venture capitalists came up and said, Hey, we want to fund this as a company. So it was an interesting turn for me in life. Cause I used to be just an academic and now I'm an entrepreneur. And um, so I started this company and one of the things we did is shrink this down to a wristband with vibratory motors in the band. And um, yeah, so our first market was for people who are deaf and we have it on wrists all over the world. And it's just been very wonderful and inspiring to hear people's stories about the things that they can, you know, the auditory world that they're picking up on now um, in all kinds of ways. So that was the first thing. We actually just launched a product for 
tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, it turns out 15% of the population has that. And it can be very aversive. And there's been a study on this in neuroscience. This has gone on for six years now about what's called bimodal stimulation, which is if you play sounds at the same time that you're feeling something, this reduces the aversiveness of tinnitus. And it's because it essentially teaches your brain what is actually an external sound. Because when you hear an external sound, you're getting verification of it on your wristband versus when your brain is generating the internal sound of you know, the ringing in your ears, your brain says, oh, I guess that must be not a real sound because I'm not getting any verification, confirmation on my wrist. So, so anyway, that has been tremendously successful. We just launched that recently. And we're about to put something out for high frequency hearing loss, which is as people get older, they lose their high frequencies. So we're doing listening in real time for these high frequency parts of speech. And we put that in the wristband. Okay, so that's all the stuff we're doing with the wristband. But we also have 70 other projects going on um, with uh, feeding other kinds of information in. So, you know, whatever, anything from infrared light to electromagnetic fields to stock market, Twitter data, things like this. These are all the kinds of information we're feeding into the wristband and trying these. And the reason we have so many projects is because we've opened this up to the developer community. So we have, you know, an open API and SDKs for every platform. And um, we have contests all the time. And people submit super cool ideas from all over the world. And that's, uh, if any, I just, without talking about this too much, if anybody's interested, just go to neosensory.com slash developers, and you can see many of the projects that are underway with this. I was going to say 70 projects. Uh, I didn't know how on point I was when I asked you if you inject novelty into your company. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a lot of projects to have on hand. Um, I, now, I think at one point, I forget who you were talking to, but I, I listened to a conversation with you and it was perhaps on impact theory. Um, and you were talking about people adding to the, the buzz, I believe, and adding things like infrared and stuff. And I think you said something about like seeing what cars were driven most recently um, from the infrared oh. picking up. Like, can you talk a bit about that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah we hooked up, we hooked up uh, mid-wave infrared to the band. So we are picking up on, you know, heat signatures. And it's this incredible world that's right there that's totally available that we never can tell. So I, I was wearing this, I, I happened to go to the library with my kids and you know, first of all, walking through the parking lot. Yeah. As I was passing cars, I could feel which engine blocks were hot and which were not. Um, and, you know, so I could tell right away who parked in the last you know, 25 minutes or who hadn't. Now you might think that's totally useless, but it is a piece of information that's sitting out there. That's just, you know, normally invisible to us to so go into the library. There are two seats, two empty seats there. I could tell somebody had been sitting in one and not the other, you know, sometime in the last half hour. Um, and then I could even tell which books had been picked up. There, were, there was sort of a display thing where there were several books laid out. And just by passing my wrist over it, I could tell, oh, someone has recently picked this up because the heat signature still stays there. Um, and you, you, anyway, the point is there's so much information in the world that's just sitting there, but we as homo sapiens don't have midwave infrared detection normally. And so we just don't see it. Um, I also had worn a, um, a near infrared band at a different point. And uh, I walked out, I was going to somebody's house and I was walking between some houses and suddenly I felt all this infrared. I thought, where the heck is that coming from? And I, 
and I just followed my wrist and there was a, a, a night vision camera uh, which is surrounded with infrared LEDs, but of course, totally, it's totally invisible to us in normal circumstances, but it was totally obvious to me wearing the wristband. So I just, I'm absolutely obsessed with the electromagnetic spectrum and all the stuff that's out there that we don't see, but can have, have direct access to. Now, what blows my mind is technically, if you wore this long enough, you would, this would become an instinctual thing, right? Where you would you would start to actually make decisions subconsciously based on what you're picking up from your wristband, correct? Yeah, you got it. That's exactly right. Because all the senses that we currently have, you know, our eyes, ears, our nose, fingertips, mouth, all that, that just, we just take that for granted. Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I heard something over there. Oh, I saw something over there. But these are just, you know, these weird devices, like, you know, like our ears are captured, you know, they're just devices for capturing air compression waves and converting that into spikes inside the brain, where your eyes are these spheres in your head that capture photons and they convert them into spikes in your brain. And your fingertips are very multidimensional. They pick up pain and itch and temperature and stretch and all that stuff. And you just feed it in. But yes, exactly as you said, we become used to it. We, we develop what's called a qualia, where we have a private internal subjective experience of it. We say, oh yeah, that sounds like this, that looks like this, that feels like this. Um, and it's exactly the same thing when we pick up on new kinds of senses. And one of the things that you know I, I expected, but it nonetheless blew my mind, was when I spoke with um, customers who were wearing the neosensory wristband, who uh, were deaf and had been wearing it for you know three to six months, I, I said, okay, look, when, when a dog barks, you know, what is your experience? Do you, do you look at your wrist and feel like, oh, wait, I just heard a buzz on my wrist. What does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. And they said, no, I just, I hear it. Mm. And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, do you have any cognitive translation? Like they said, no, I just, I, I know there's a dog that just barked. And it's exactly our experience with our ears. There's, you know, if you're a, if you're somebody who studies the ears, you'll see that it's this incredibly complicated pathway that happens. Um, you know, for, first you, you hit the eardrum and then there's three little bones in the middle ear that convert that vibration on the eardrum to this uh, inner membrane. And then that goes through this fluid filled chamber and vibrate. I mean, it's this incredibly complicated thing. And yet you just feel like you're hearing my voice and you don't, by the way, of course say, oh, Eagleman's now saying some high frequency and some low frequency, some middle frequency. Instead you just hear my voice. And it's exactly the same thing when you pass the information into a different channel. And so this, this makes me think of the term umwelt right? Which is like the world of sensory experiences. And honestly, this feels like as you're talking about this stuff, it makes me feel like humans are going to start developing these superpowers. Like we're going to be creating our sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth sense. Um, and you're going to have people who are walking around the world attuned to these things. Um, do you see a future? Uh, do you see a near future where we start actually picking up senses like this and it becomes a normal thing, maybe from wristbands like this? Um, that's, that's the future I'm working on. I mean, that's exactly yeah. what neosensory is about. Neosensory, of course, meaning new sense. Yeah. The, um, th that is the thing I'm obsessed with is understanding how our biology actually constrains our experience of reality. And, and we can now build machines to pick up on all kinds of stuff. So why not put that straight into the brain? The brain, this is a, a longer thing, but I'll just summarize, you know, essentially my last 20 years of research on this is that the brain is a general purpose compute device. And whatever information it gets, just figures out how to use it and optimize it. So I mentioned about the eyes and the ears and the fingertips and all that. It's just spikes in the dark. That's all they're passing up to the brain is just 
little electrical, electrical and chemical signals. And, and your brain says, oh, okay, here's how I can use these and optimize these. And obviously it finds information from your fingertips more useful than information from your knee or something like that. And that's why it devotes more real estate to your fingertips. Um, but anyway, it turns out that no matter what spikes you feed in, it'll figure out if it's useful. And so if I'm picking up on infrared or stock market or whatever, or drones or factory or whatever, if it's useful, if it's relevant to me as a human, the brain will start devoting real estate to it. So yeah, that is exactly the goal. So without maybe giving away your, your future IP and products here, uh, are, there, are there specific ones that you think are, are coming down the line that you're especially excited about? Like things you think are realistically possible in the, in the near term? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting from a business point of view, we've proved, I mean, most of, uh, essentially all these things are, are realistic and possible and we've, mm -hmm. we've already implemented them. From a business point of view, it's interesting to see where there's a clear market path, which is to say most of these things, like, do you want to, you know, buy a wristband so you can detect infrared? The, the issue is it's not, it's not clear that it's useful um, or pick up on whatever. But, you know, one of the things that I'm about to be working on a little bit more from a business point of view is with, with drone pilots, it turns out we can feed in the pitch, yaw, roll, orientation, and heading of a drone as somebody's piling around. And this is super useful because it's like they're stretching their skin up there and they're one with the drone. They're, they're feeling the drone. And um, this helps drone pilots really perform much better. And so, um, you know, as the drone market explodes, I think there's gonna be a use for this. But many of the things that we've invented serve as sort of cool proofs of principle that we wanna use, but it's not clear that there's a market for it yet. I personally think that in the electromagnetic spectrum, there's probably 12 Nobel prizes hidden in there, which is to say, you know, if, if we start wearing stuff, right, like if I were tapped into some particular wavelength and just walking around all the time and feeling it, you'd probably make a lot of discoveries. Now, I just want to clarify this, you know, we have machines that can measure in many of these ranges, you know, we've got these hyperspectral cameras that measure lots of ranges. But that's different than walking around and experiencing the world and just, you know, being in nature and asking questions and being in public and asking questions about it. Um, because we'll pick things up. I'll just give you a one second example, which is some, some colleagues of mine run a satellite company where they view the ocean in the microwave range because you can see ships and so on. Um, but what they discovered totally accidentally is just by looking at water in the microwave range, you can tell whether uh, it's drinkable or polluted. And nobody knew that, but they just they just realized because they're humans looking around, they're like, oh, look at the difference here. So that's what I mean when I say there's so many things to discover just by walking around and seeing the world in other ranges. Yeah, well, clean water seems kind of like a big deal. So that's a big one. <laughs> seems like it could be a positive, uh, positive potential there. Um, would you would you consider yourself a transhumanist then? I'm sure you're familiar with the term. Yeah, totally, totally. And I mean, there's a sense in which we've been transhumanists for a very long time, right? I mean, you know, we, we've left evolution by natural selection so far in the dust, um, you know, because we're a caring species and we take care of kids with diseases and whatever, but we do this with ourselves all the time. We replace hearts, we replace uh, all kinds of things. You know, it's not too long before there's going to be prosthetic parts to the brain, uh, as in, oh, your hippocampus is degrading with uh, Alzheimer's. Okay, well, here's an artificial prosthetic hippocampus and so on. Um, so yes, we're already well down that road of transhumanism. 
All right, absolutely. Well, uh, we we let the community know ahead of time that you were going to be coming on, so uh, they asked us some questions. Would you be down for just a few short uh, Q and A's? Yeah, you bet. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so one of the ones, this is going to be a bit more meta, I suppose, but we had Farhan Malik, Fabio Novo, and Jay Mutsafi all pretty much asked the same question which is what is your leaning theory on consciousness and its origins? For instance, is the brain a receiver, transmitter, or both? And do you put any stock in things like the holonomic quantum theory of the brain? Yeah, great question. I mean, this is the question at the center of neuroscience is how the heck do you put together a bunch of pieces and parts and get conscious, get private subjective experience? For, for anyone who hasn't thought about this question, you know, it's just, if I take 86 billion tinker toys and I put them together in some clever way, like at what point do I add a new tinker toy and say, ah, now it is experiencing the, the beauty of a sunset and the taste of feta cheese and the, the redness of red and the pain of pain and so on. So, um, so we don't know. This is really just a massively unsolved question. So you know, I would say probably the majority of neuroscientists are trying to think about this in terms of what we know in physics. In other words, how do you put together this thing and you've got these loops upon loops in it? And how do these loops build models, which build models of models? And, you know, maybe consciousness comes out of that. So that's, I would say, the majority direction. In neuroscience, there's a lot to be mined there still. Some people suggest, look, we know about quantum mechanics and physics. Maybe it's a quantum system somehow. Um, and it's absolutely a possibility. Um, some people have suggested, look, maybe consciousness is a fundamental quality of the universe in the, in the same way that, you know, whatever photons have spin up and spin down. And, you know, you've got these things, maybe consciousness is something. And if you put together some number of molecules, you have a little consciousness. If you put together a whole bunch of molecules in the human, you have a lot of consciousness, you know, it, it's, it's a funny position we're in as a field because there's just so much that's unknown that uh, any of these are, let's say, a possibility. So science's table has to always remain wide and we, um, you know, we have room to keep different hypotheses on the table. And the game over the coming years is to really figure out how to do good experiments to, to get things off the table and narrow it down. Yeah, fair enough. I don't didn't think we were going to get you to answer the the mind body problem and the hard problem of consciousness there. So understandable. <laughs> uh, let's see. We also have from Dhruv Kumar and Bashin Ashunar. Um, what are your thoughts on brain computer interfaces and what roles do you think they'll play in terms of live wiring the brain? Yeah. I mean, the, I think at the, at the highest level, there are two ways to think about it. There's invasive and non-invasive. So invasive is let's say what, you know, Neuralink is doing where you <clears throat> drill a hole in the skull, you, you sew some electrodes in there. And, and, you know, this idea of putting electrodes in the brain, this has been going on since the sixties, uh, just for clarity, Neuralink is making it, you know, just a, a better wireless, denser experience by, by threading it in there. But it's the same idea that's been around for a long time. Um, the, the, so here's what I think. Neuralink is going to absolutely find a great market for this stuff in clinical scenarios for various sorts of things, epilepsy and so on, depression perhaps. Um, but sort of the mythology that people are interested in is, hey, will, will everybody go and get a, a hole in their head and get this sewn in and be able to you know, interface with your phone faster than typing with two thumbs? 
I actually, I'm not too sanguine on that. I don't think that's going to happen anytime in the next few decades. And the reason is, you know, do I want to interface with my phone faster? Yes. Do I want to get a hole in my head? Probably not. So um, it's just not, it's not worth it. That's why I have put my own, you know, chips on, on non-invasive brain computer interfaces. So that's, for example, we're building at Neosensory with our, you know, devices that can push information in through the skin. Um, there are, of course, lots of good monitoring devices, you know, from a ton of EEG wearable companies to various other things where you can sense all kinds of things through the skin about, you know, you look at the biomolecules that are coming out and you say, oh, this, this stress, whatever, you can measure having skin response, you can measure, you know, any smartwatch now measures heart rate, heart rate variability, so on. So anyway, um, I'm, you know, I think there's so much to be done here. I'm very interested in this topic of picking up on invisible states of our bodies and then feeling those. So for example, we use the neosensory wristband to, to put in information about, hey, what is my brain doing in terms of EEG mm -hmm. or what is my heart rate or heart rate variability or galvanic skin response? Like what, what if I could feel this thing that my body is doing, but I'm not normally aware of it? And one of the things we've done is we've hooked up a, a smartwatch so that you can detect what the smartwatch is measuring. You can feel that, but we pass that information not via Bluetooth or something you might expect, but instead via the internet. And the reason we do that is so that somebody else can wear the smartwatch and you can feel their physiology. So for example, like while my wife is wearing the smartwatch, I'm feeling her physiology and I can call her even if I'm on the other side of the nation and say, hey, honey, you feel stressed out? Is everything okay? Now, you know, whether this will be useful for relationships or not, we have no idea, but um, it's just, there's so much to try with all of the stuff about how to pick up on the information from our bodies. I love it. And on that note, one question here was from Mina Shah, and she was wondering if you've explored any possibilities with your vest, with the, the wristband um, for people with autism. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out one of the developers, it's this team of, uh, of two students at USC, actually. Um, they are interested in, um, can we pick up via vocal signals on the emotion of the person you're talking to? So they, using machine learning, pick up on whether the person you're talking to is angry or sad or happy or whatever. And then the wristband buzzes to tell you that. Mm -hmm. And the reason, of course, is because children with autism often have a difficult time picking up on basic social cues like that and then modulating their own responses appropriately. And so this is a very simple way to you know, just wear the wristband and essentially get told, oh, I see this person is, is really angry. I should be aware of that or being really happy or sad. And so um, they've just spun off a company called Valence Vibrations. And um, yeah, it's great. This is exactly what we have always wanted to see is people taking the wristband and you know, generating um, a new uh, pathway with it. I love it. I love I love the potential with these these neo senses as you call them. I'm I'm ready to sign up as your guinea pig. You've got me <laughs> sold. Um, but let's uh, respect your time here. Like I said, um, but before we end, I do want to give you the chance to maybe reiterate how people can get involved. Uh, any projects you're working on, websites, etc. Anything at all you want to do to let people know how to get involved with your work and what you're excited about. Great. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is neosensory.com. We have a blog where we post all kinds of, you know, projects that we're working on and um, yeah, anybody, you know, all our SDKs are all open source. Anyone who wants to try 
saying, look, I can detect such and such information using this machine or this sensor or whatever. And I want to try what would it be like if I could directly experience that and walk around in the world that way, please go and, and try that. We're super excited to, to have the whole community be a part of this. Wonderful. And we'll add that link in the, uh, the episode description to make it easy for everybody. Um, David, Dr. Eagleman, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you taking the time amongst all the stuff you're working on these days. Great. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. And now we're going to take a moment for a short message about our membership for organizations, which you can find by going to su.org and clicking organizations in the menu. Singularity Group was founded upon the belief that the world's biggest problems represent the world's biggest opportunities. Our mission remains unchanged, but our methods have evolved exponentially. Today, we're opening doors around the world as a digital-first organization. We invite future-thinking companies to join Singularity Group to learn about the breadth of exponential technologies, to empower your organization with an abundance mindset, and to grow networks that can create solutions to humanity's greatest challenges. With an unprecedented year behind us and many great challenges ahead, leaders across the globe are wrestling with the future, how to embrace change, stay ahead of trends, and build sustainable businesses. We help entrepreneurial leaders better understand how exponential technologies can be applied in their companies to advance their goals for people, planet, profit, and purpose. And it all starts with the mindset, the skill set, and the network. Together, let's discuss how membership can turn you and your leaders into exponential thinkers and prepare for an abundant future for all. Together, we can impact a billion people.